Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Come on, everybody said? Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for coming today and joining us. Thank you, Gary, and leading worship today. And we'll have a closing song here at the end. And also Matt and everybody that's here today, thank you so much. And Casey, too. So, you've been probably watching the news this week, or maybe you haven't been, but if you have been, you have been uh, probably following and knowing about Supreme Court nominee. Well, thank you, sir. It's my, my lovely assistant, Gary Hanson. Thank you. For <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we all know that we're in the midst of a Supreme Court uh, nomination uh, being uh, questioned and being voted on. I want to ask you a question. Why don't you pretend for a minute with me that a Supreme Court nominee has just been approved. Not necessarily the one we're talking about right now, but just in general. This is a very important position, isn't it? They serve for life or until they retire. They, out, they can outserve several presidential, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. They can outlive uh, many of those uh, administrations and continue to serve. It's a very important role. And let's just say for a minute that you're uh, visiting Washington, D.C. A couple years ago, we were back in Washington, D.C. for the first time, really visiting, a great time there. And you get up early because of the time jet lag and everything, and you go out in the morning, and you find the Starbucks, which is there, right? And uh, you're from Seattle, right? And you go find Starbucks. You sit down at Starbucks, have coffee before you do your sightseeing. It's really early, and in walks the Supreme Court nominee who's just been approved. He sits down at your table, or she sits down at your table. And you sit there with them, and you introduce yourself, and and they say to you, you know, you're a resident, you you live here in this country, you're obviously concerned about this country. If you could give me one piece of advice, what would you tell me? I'm here to listen to you, just as an average common person. One piece of advice. What one piece of advice would you give that Supreme Court nominee? Uh, tell somebody next to you. What would you tell him? Her? Him? What would you tell him? What piece of advice would you give them? Yeah, don't say it too loud. I might hear you. and make you. <laughs> okay. Did you get some good ideas? How about just a couple of them? How about over here? One idea from the section over here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your might. The greatest of the commandments. Good, thank you. How about the middle section here? Anybody? Really know the Constitution. Very good. Thanks, Barb. Really know the Constitution. That's a good idea for a Supreme Court judge. How about over here? Pray and what? Pray and then follow, follow the Constitution. Well, this morning in our Sunday school classes, for those of you that have been here with our adult classes this morning, we have been, well, we just started a new study on the life of King David. And this is a very important part of Israel's story. And so this morning is an introductory lesson. You talked about, your teacher talked and shared with you about Israel's desire to have a king. And, of course, the first king to fulfill that role was Saul. 
And so, and I invite you to come back and join us for Sunday school. We have uh, classes for all ages, and we have three adult classes right now. Uh, the Fidelia class is meeting in here. The Aletheia and Karis class combined is meeting downstairs in the regular Aletheia room and across from the nursery in 207 is the Arizzo and Adalis group. And so we will be meeting in those classes. We start teaching right at 9.30. So come right at 9.30. Next week, the teaching is going to start right at 9.30. And bring your young people and children too because their classes start at 9.30. And the peer time, the sharing, the prayer requests, and the fellowship will happen after the teaching time. But we're going to follow up on that in our morning services to a bit as well. So I'd like to ask you to uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word for a few moments, we pray that our hearts would be open to your word and we might hear your word. We thank you for the freedom we have to come and to open, to share, to discuss, and to apply the word of God to our lives. Uh, may you bless this time and bless our children as they continue to meet now in, their, in the children's church, children's choir, in the early childhood classes, as they also gather around your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for these teachers, uh, both these leaders that are teaching now and those who have taught in Sunday school and the commitment they've made to minister to our young people. Lord, God bless them, Father. Thank you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Israel asked for a king, for Samuel. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy Chapter 17. This might come to a surprise to some of you if you've never seen this before. If you've read through the Bible, you have seen this. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 17 during the time of uh, Moses. The book of Deuteronomy takes place at the end of Moses' life as they have, they have traveled uh, from Egypt. They've crossed the Sinai. They've come to the uh, eastern shore of the Jordan River, where we, about a year and a few months ago, many of us stood together on that very spot and looked out across the river toward uh, the land of Israel. And it was on this area here, uh, as they came to that place, they got close to it, that God asked Moses to once again go over the Mosaic law for these people and to teach them the law and to remind them of this law. And so it's in this book, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, and I want us to begin at verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and have taken possession of it, and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Let us set a king over us like all their nations around us. Could you, could you advance? You know, I'm not, uh, my advanced thing is not working here today. Can you do that for me? Or who's, who's got that? Anybody? Oh, you got it. All right. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. You have to watch me because I'm going to be pointing at you a lot today. All right. And then Gary will pay you afterward, my assistant, Gary Hansen. Okay. So. Introduction, instructions for a king. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Have you noticed this before? We saw in 1 Samuel, it seems like this has come up for the first time. But in fact, in the Mosaic Law, God has already predicted this. Now, there's a whole lesson in itself of God's sovereignty and uh, what the Bible tells us of God setting up and taking down nations. But he says, when you get there and you've taken possession of it and you've settled in it, this three-step process, when you get to the land, you've conquered it, you've settled down into the promised land, when this happens... You are going to say, 
let us make a king. Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. And you looked at this in your class this morning. Uh, the two reasons that uh, Israel wanted a king. Number one was to be like all the other nations around us. And number two, of course, was they saw the wickedness of Samuel's sons. Because they'd already been through this with Eli. And now Samuel's sons were the same way. And they didn't want to do this again. They wanted a king like everybody else. So he says, this is going to happen. And here's my instructions for when you have a king over you in the land. First of all, the first thing is, you see me doing this, that means you, okay? All right. First thing is, he will be chosen by the Lord. Look at the verse here. Be sure to appoint, verse 15, over you, the king the Lord your God chooses. God says, you will ask for a king. And he pretty much gives him permission. So when this took place in Samuel, like you studied in class today, uh, this took place in accordance with what God had already offered and predicted and said, this will happen, and here's how you are to do it. And you are to have a king that I choose. I, the Lord, will choose your king. You do not choose your own king. They did not have a monarchical family. There was no way for them to pick a king. There was no family in Israel. It was not going to be the family of Moses. Moses was a Levite, and there are strict uh, regulations in Israel and the, the Jewish law and in their culture about separating the king and the Levitical priesthood and their families. It could not be Moses. He says, you will set a king, but I get to choose the king. You will set a king over you that I choose. And God chose Saul. God chose King Saul, and we're going to see how God chooses King David, who no one else would have chosen. Secondly... This king must be an Israelite. Notice this next verse here. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. So when you choose a king, the two conditions are, I will choose him, and he must be an Israelite. And this will be your king. Now it's interesting that God gives some very short instructions for this king. And looking ahead to the future, here's what's going to happen. First of all, he's going to tell them, here's what a king is not supposed to do. You will notice here in the next verse, verse 16. The king, moreover, must not. Now, you can have a king like all the other nations, but your king is going to be different from all the other nations. The kings and the nations around uh, Israel and Judah, the land of Judah and Palestine during this time, Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, later on, uh, Babylon, Persia, uh, Lebanon, all these cities and cultures, the Ammonites and so forth in the Bible. Their kings taxed them heavily. They, they were worshipped, most of them, especially, for example, in Pharaoh. The, the Pharaoh of Egypt was a god. You worshipped him as one of the gods. They were very despotic. They made the laws. They created the law. And this is the kind of kings that they had around their nations. And Israel's king is to be different. He is to be chosen by God. And here are some things he is not supposed to do, which any other king could do. Any other king in the world could do this and did this. But he specifically mentions three things this king is not supposed to do. Did I do that or did you do that? Oh, thanks. All right, you're good. Okay. Instructions for king. He is not to collect, number one, he is not to collect horses. Look at this. When you get a king, 
It says here, the king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, why is he not to collect horses? No offense, Webers, okay? <laughs> we all like horses, and we appreciate especially those horses going to camp every year and Camp Cedarbrook and so forth. And hope some of you take horse lessons out there. What is it about horses? Well, the translation here is a little awkward. And in, in, the, in, the, in some of the older translations, it, it doesn't come out quite as clear, but you'll notice it's connected with Egypt. Having horses is somehow connected with their life in Egypt. And the, the Hebrew scholars agree on this, that, that what is being said here is, this king is not going to have an army made up of chariots and cavalry like the Egyptians. Remember the story, what happened with when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea? Who followed them into the Red Sea? The chariots. When they get into the Promised Land and David has to fight the Philistines, the Philistines have chariots because the Philistines live on the Shephala, the, the, the lowlands as the hills of Judah come down to the Mediterranean coast. And if you've been there, you think of the Mediterranean coastland. Uh, think of California, the coastland along uh, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, this, this is very conducive to chariots. The hills of Judea were not conducive to chariots, and in Jordan as well. But he was not to depend on an army that had primarily cavalry and chariots. And think of David's life. As you study David and you look at the battles that he fights against the Philistines, how often does David go out with chariots and horses? It's foot soldiers because they are to depend on God not their army. Their army is not going to win the battles. God is going to win the battles. He will use their army. And they are told here, don't go back to Egypt. Don't trade slaves. Don't go back there and trade money. Don't go back there and try to get horses to bring back to Palestine for your use. This king is not to collect horses. He is to depend on God. Does that make sense? That's why he said he is not to collect horses. The second thing it says he's not to collect is wives. His wives. Now, I'm not, this is not the tired old joke about, you know, one wife is enough and that kind of stuff. It's obvious why he's not supposed to collect wives. He says right here, he must not take many wives. Why? His heart will be led astray. His wife's heart. His, his heart will be led astray. And that's because what we're talking about here are political marriages. It was common in the old world, as it was in much of Europe, of course, early on, it was common to intermarry countries and nations for political purposes. And you take wives from neighboring countries and, and you solidify your alliances and your allies, or you conquer and you take wives. And a lot of times when we see this multiplication of wives among the kings of Israel, it has to do with these political reasons. It's for power. And also, these wives were going to come from, from foreign nations who worship foreign gods. And the Bible and he makes it clear throughout the Old Testament law many times, Israel, you are not to intermarry. This has nothing to do with racial issues. Like People have used this in modern times. It has nothing to do with that. It's not, so much, it's not a racial thing. It's a religious 
thing, that these people worship idols. And if you marry these people and bring their idols into your house, you will begin to worship their idols. So he is not to intermarry. He is not to collect many, many wives. It's interesting. You know, we see this, this dilemma in the Old Testament. And it is a dilemma. We get asked about this by our children and youth. How come Abraham had concubines, if you will? You know, Sarah's. What about the kings? How come King David? You're going to study King David. David had more than one wife. Why did God permit this? And I think that's the question. Why did God permit this? Was it God's first best? No. But he did permit this in the Old Testament. And there was a price paid for it at times. We'll see this, of course. But in this particular case, the, this king is to be different from all the other. Remember the story of Esther, right? The, the king of Persia. Remember the whole story, how she was brought into his harem? She was brought into the harem and so forth. This was common. This was accepted. This was normal. And in fact, there are some ancient Jewish teachings that seem to indicate the, Israel, the Israelite king could have no more than 18 wives. You know, go figure, you know. Later on, during the New Testament times, the Qumran community, which produced the Dead Sea Scrolls during the 2nd century before Christ to the 1st century after Christ, that community, uh, they had a strict rule that the king was only to have one wife. And they believed this is what God would have. Don't collect horses. Don't collect wives. And finally, do not collect silver. You notice he says here, he must not accumulate, the end of verse 17, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. This is so different than all the other kings who taxed their people and they had no choice in it. And in fact, this is what Samuel warns the people, right? When, he, when they ask for a king, he says, by the way, you will get a king. He will take your taxes. He will take your best servants. He will conscript you for military service. He will take all these things. And they said, we don't care. We want a king. But this king that Israel will have is to not collect for himself personally to amass great wealth like all the other kings did. It was normal and it was accepted in that culture. But Israel's king was not to do this. So those are the prohibitions. What he is not to do. What he is to do. It's very interesting. This is the only instruction that is given in the books of Moses for the future king. Here's what he is to do. What is the king to do? I want you to continue in this passage here in verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life. Now I ask you, what instruction would you give uh, to an incoming Supreme Court judge? Good, good suggestions. Follow God, pray, and as Barb said, know the Constitution. Maybe it would be a good thing. For an incoming judge to sit down and write out himself the Constitution and take that exercise, the President, the Congress, to write out the Constitution. Why does God say that this king is to write his own copy of the law? 
he is to write a copy of this law himself. Now, it's interesting. There are a few translations that say the Levites are to do this for him. The commentary from the Jewish Publication Society makes a very strong point, as is, as is in the Hebrew scholarship, that this translation is correct. He is to write out himself on a scroll with pen and quill. He is to sit down and make a second copy of the law. You ever seen a Hebrew scroll rolled out? You ever seen the five books of Moses on that scroll? It's, you'd be carrying it like this. Now, there is some question. Is he to write out the entire Mosaic law, all five books? Or is it just this part here of Deuteronomy? Well, we don't know for sure. But either way, he is to copy the law that includes these instructions for the king of Israel. He is to do it himself. He is to hand copy it. Well, of course, that's the only way he could do it, is to hand copy it. I wonder about that. Why do you think God made this the primary instruction of all the things you could tell a king to do? Why this? Why specifically? He is to sit down and write out a copy of the law. In fact, this is where we get the name Deuteronomy for this book in the Bible. The five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, in the Hebrew have different names. Genesis is Bereshit, in the beginning. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, we get our names, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy comes from this verse because the word that's used here to make a copy basically has the idea to, to double it, to do a double, two, duto. And that's where the name Deuteronomy, nomos is law, the second duto, the second giving of the law. He is to make a copy of this law. You know, it's interesting. I have at least one college professor here this morning with me. And uh, we've had discussion, and I've read other studies, and I did have an opportunity to teach a college class uh, back at Grace, a two-week intensive class about mm, about 10 years ago maybe. And it's kind of interesting today. Um, for those of you that went to college in days of yore, <laughs> okay, um, this would, you know, you took notes, correct? You hand-wrote notes. Not so much today. Today you can get them online. You can download them. Uh, you can use your uh, computer, your tablet, or your phone, whatever you want. Handwriting notes is probably not, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the authority, it's probably not predominant, but there has been some reasonable study done. And the reason why some professors insist that when you're in my class, you put your laptop away, Let's be honest. You have a laptop, a computer. I don't care how old you are, right? I know that for a fact. I know the oldest person in this room today, and I know that she has a computer, okay? All right. You have a, a computer. You're working on something, and an instant message pops up. A Facebook pops up. A news item, flash, pops up. What do you do? Come on. Yeah, I mean I, I mean, I meet with people, right? People meet with me, and what happens when their phone beeps? 
I'm talking, I'm talking to you, and my phone beeps, and, and I'm thinking about my phone. This, what, who's calling? What's this important message I've got? You're in your car. You're driving, and your phone beeps. And do you resist the temptation because it's against the law, right, to text, to read it? You know how many accidents take place because of those simple diversions? You know, there are professors, because there's been study, that there is something about handwriting things down when you actually do it yourself physically with your hand and a pen or pencil, there is something about the retention of that. There is something there. Am I not right, trainer? There is something to that. And there's a reason for this. He is supposed to write this down. He is supposed to pay 100% attention to what he is doing. He is not to be distracted. So this word of God gets into his soul. You're not as good at multitasking as you think you are. That's a fact. We all think we're great at multitasking, don't we? We're not. Every time you're doing something and you respond to a message or an email or a text, your brain stops, refocuses, and you come back, it has to refocus again. You're not as good at it as you think. There is something to this. And he is to write this law out. Word by word, Hebrew letter by Hebrew letter, he is to make his own copy. And when he has this copy, this copy, uh, go ahead and give me the next one there. He's so intent on my sermon. Thank you. He's just really listening to me this morning. I had to break his hand. He is to keep it with him always. You notice that? He is to keep, this is a scroll, my friends. This is not a cell phone, okay, that you have with the whole Bible on you. You have multiple translations on your phone, right, Bob? Multiple. This is a scroll. You'd have to hire Gary Hansen to carry it with you <laughs> wherever you go, your lovely assistant, to take it with you because this is a scroll. But he is to keep this with him. I think of our president who keeps the football, right, with the, the codes for launching atomic war. Think of the awesome responsibility of, of being a president in the Supreme Court. Think of, I mean, I, I can't even imagine ha- having to make that decision. That football is always with him. It's called a football in slang. He is to keep this law with him all the time. Why? Because he is supposed to read it every single day. That's what it says there. He is to take this. It's to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life. All the days of his life. Why? So he can practice it. He can follow the guidance from that law and do what it says. You know, this is, this is a huge part of the Mosaic law. Know to do. You see this over and over again. Joshua is told by Moses. Joshua tells the people, know it. To do it. You know the law so you can live it and do it. And this is what the king is supposed to do. Friends, this is a stark contrast to the rest of the cultures. What would be the results of doing this? What would be the results if a king actually did this? And we have no record. I don't know if David did this or not. I don't know. I hope he did. We have no record. But this is the only instruction given the king. From God. Look what it says here. If he does this, in the middle of verse 19, 
he may learn to revere the Lord God, to worship and to love, to hold God close. How do you say to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? This is the greatest of the commandments. And the Jews taught this too. The greatest Hebrew rabbi before the time of Christ, Hillel, said the exact same thing. He said the rest is all commentary. This is so critical. Love the Lord. If he does this, he will revere the Lord his God and he will follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And he will not consider himself, give me the next one, he will not consider himself better than anyone else. He will be humble. He will not turn from the law to the right or to the left in the last sentence. He and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This king, if he does this, he will remain the most... Listen, friends, I don't know about you, but I think way up to the highest of the list, if I had three things I want in a judge, a president, a lawyer, a a, a governor, a mayor, a senator, a pastor, a leader in your church, an elder... Humility has got to be at the top or toward the top, right? You see this over and over and over in the Bible. That we are called to be humble and to put others before us. If a king would do this, if he would put God's word first in his life, the result would be he would learn to love God with all of his heart and soul. And he would learn to place the people he is leading ahead of himself. And he would be humble. Friends, this is such a contrast to the world that these people lived in. And a contrast to much of the world today. By the way, how did this play out in Israel's story? Uh, Real quickly, before we close, you look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. Jump ahead a little bit. You're going to be studying David. Today you looked at Saul. The next several weeks, six weeks, we're going to look at David. And you know there was a king after David, Solomon. Solomon, who started out an extremely humble man, right? God gets, I'll give you anything you want. What's he asked for? Huh? Come on, say it. You can talk. What is it? Wisdom. He says, I'm, the, I'm but a child. This is your people. I need your wisdom. And God honored that. He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom. But how did it end up? After the Queen of Sheba has been to visit, after all the, the things of Solomon's life and all the, his successes and the building of the temple and the dedication of the temple and his, his humble prayer to God and everything, what happens? Chapter 10 of 1 Kings and verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Verse 28, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Number one, don't collect horses. Solomon collected horses. Chapter 10. Verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. 
Go out in your neighborhood today and kick some stones around. That would be silver. There was so much silver in Solomon's reign. It was as common as a stone. God granted him riches. He taxed the people heavily. He accumulated tremendous wealth. And thirdly, chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, Hittites, from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. You could read this entire chapter. I mean, up through verse 13 is, is the story. It's so bad. In verse 4, as Solomon grew old, and this, this is the man who started out so humble, right? Look at this pathetic ending to this man's life. He, I mean, this kingdom was handed to him by David. He never had to fight a battle. There was not an enemy that could touch King Solomon. He had navy. He had army. He had power. Nobody. He, had, he did not have to fight, do anything. It was, and, and, he, and everything was gone. Why? I don't think Solomon sat down and wrote out this law. He certainly didn't read it every day. And what happened? The horses, the army that he depended on, which he didn't even need he didn't fight any battles, the chariots and the cavalry, the silver, which he didn't need, right? You think he was going to starve? He didn't need the silver. And the wives. And it's so desperate. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his hearts after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord God as the heart of David, his father had been. He followed the Ashtra, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. I don't mean to uh, unsettle you this morning, but Molech was the god that they would place live babies and pull them into the fire as worship and burn them. Yeah, that's how, how sad this picture is. Why? Because he would not follow the word of God. And God predicted it. That's all he had to do. All this man had to do was write out the law and read it and follow it. And if a person would have done this, the result would have been, the result of this would have been Peace, prosperity, safety, and righteousness in the kingdom. I ask you, what one piece of advice would you give? What one piece of advice would we give to ourselves today? What one piece of advice would we give to ourselves today? Would it be thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee? Might it be Second Timothy? All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuke. I mean, all Scripture. We're studying the Old Testament. We're studying David, right? Why? All Scripture is useful, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. What? 
for every good work. Gary talked about this last week, about the difference between knowing and doing and putting those two together, like the bike riding, learning to re-ride the bike. All Scripture, friends. And so this morning, as, I, as we wrap up this time together, I want to encourage you. I want to just encourage you again. What about God's Word? Have you ever written down God's Word? Have you ever done that? I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to give you a challenge today. It's simple. I would like to challenge you. Take a piece of paper. Take a journal. Borrow your kid's diary. Probably not. <laughs> Unless it's a, never mind. Okay, we'll do that. And pick a passage of Scripture. And sit down and copy it. Turn off your phone. There's a button on your phone. Mine has one. It clicks. I can't hear it. Turn off your computer. Turn everything off that keeps popping up and buzzing and clicking and binking and everything else. And sit down and copy a portion of God's Word by hand yourself. And then read it out loud to yourself. If you're here with someone else today, maybe you'll read it with them. Maybe you'll read it to your kids before they go to school. I'm not talking about the whole Mosaic Law, okay? Let me a couple of suggestions. Last week, Gary preached from Romans chapter 12. Beautiful chapter of the Bible. Take Romans chapter 12. You could do it in two settings, verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 21. And make your own copy of it. Write it out with your own hand. One of these things. Or a pencil. And copy it word for word. And then read it to yourself every day this week. How about Ephesians 1? Want to be uh, more, uh, take it all in one shot. Do the whole chapter of Ephesians 1 in one setting. Take some time. Write it out. Word for word. Romans chapter 8, to me, one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. It's not to me to make that decision, right? I'm just talking about how it impacts me. Romans chapter 8. I put on the tables over here some little pieces of paper about this big. Uh, I didn't bring myself one. And I broke it down where you could do a little section each day. And you could do the whole book of chapter of Romans 8, a few, five or six verses a day. I'm just going to challenge you. Why don't you do what the king of Israel was told to do? Take your own hand, your own pen, your own brain, your own Bible, piece of paper, and make your own copy and think about it as you write it. And do it. Look in that passage, each section. What is there one thing God's asking of me that I can do? That's all the king of Israel had to do. Think of Solomon's end and what it could have been if he just would have done that and kept it nearby every day and read it. Gary, come on up. Let's close our service. Thank you for leading worship this morning. Next Sunday, Pastor Gary is going to be preaching. We'll be in uh, Michigan for a little visit with our family, and we're going to continue our study uh, from the life of David.
King Solomon brought a lot of havoc on that nation. The nation split after him. But God did retain his family as the kings of Judah, the two southern tribes of Judah. The story winds toward the end in the Old Testament uh, of, the, of their, before they go into captivity. And it's a horrible story how it ends. Right toward the very end, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. Eight years old. What would you tell an eight-year-old <laughs> to be king of Israel? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all those sacrificial altars. And while they were in the temple, bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given to Moses. And he said, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. Shaphan took it and brought it to the king. And he read it. He read the book of the law in front of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. And he gave his orders. Go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the remnant of Israel and Judah, about what is written in this book that we have found. The book had disappeared. For all these years. And they found it. And the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple. With the people of Jerusalem. The priests. The Levites. All the people from the least over in the early childhood department. To the greatest in here. And he read it in the hearing of all all the words of the book of the covenant. Which had been found in the temple of the Lord. It's the last godly king. Why? Because he heard and responded to God's word. Will we hear and respond to God's word? Lord, thank you for each person again has come today to hear your word through the music, through the fellowship, and through the sermon today. So easy, Lord, to leave this place and set it here until next week. But God, may I, may the pastors and the elders and the leaders and each person here today, may we not forget your word one hour this week. It is so refreshing. It is so beautiful. It is so life-changing. And we are so apt to forget about it. May it go with us this week because you go with us. Christ, our Savior's name, all of God's people can say together, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Join us next week and uh, join the confusion one more day.